All right, boys and girls, we are back with another edition of the Ben Dominich Podcast brought to you by Fox News. You can check out all of our podcasts at foxnewspodcast.com. I hope you'll rate, review, and subscribe to this one and share it with a friend if you find it of interest. I am happy to have a conversation today with the former Secretary of State, former member of Congress, Mike Pompeo. He is the author of the new book, Never Give an Inch. I had the luxury of profiling Mike Pompeo for a recent issue of The Spectator. I hope that you will check out that article at thespectator.com. I described him as being a dark horse candidate for the 2024 presidential nomination, someone who I thought would perhaps uh, significantly overperform. And I also think that, you know, he's someone who is, regardless of whether you are a fan of his or someone who is on his side when it comes to the presidential contest, someone who's very interesting in terms of charting the path forward for the foreign policy conversation on the right. He's someone who obviously is kind of a heartland populist in a lot of different ways uh, and charted an interesting path when it came to the job of Secretary of State. Mike Pompeo, coming up next. Mike Pompeo, thank you so much for taking the time to join me today. Ben, it's great to be with you. Uh, Before I go any further, I have to just ask you, when it comes to the amount of questions that you have to field about the incredible physical transformation that you have achieved. Are you tired of it? Have you just gotten to that point where you just say, oh, it's it's a lifelong thing, it's a day-to-day thing or what have you? Uh, or are you just amazed <laughs> that there are so many people who are astounded by the fact that a politician could actually dedicate their minds to doing something and achieve it? Ah, oh, goodness. No, I, I'm never tired of somebody saying I, I look better uh, because I, I certainly feel better. Uh, I, I am surprised at how many people are surprised to your point, I suppose. Uh, on the other hand, uh, you know, it also, I also feel the pressure. Now, every time I grab a cookie, I think of them asking these questions. They go, oh my gosh, I got I to gotta, I gotta keep at it. So all of the above. I asked uh, someone who is a, uh, a former employee of yours uh, what his uh, – uh, analysis of the situation was, uh, and he said, well, I think that you ought to consider the possibility that the um, excess that uh, Mike was carrying around was simply knowledge about uh, various, you know, uh, Arab threats to the United States of America, and that as he eliminated those, <laughs> he simply sloughed it off. <laughs> I like that. I'll go with that, Ben. That's, that's better than the, the, the reality. I like it. <laughs> Um, I want to talk to you about your book, obviously, but, um, you know, first of all, it it seems to me that politicians write books for a lot of different reasons. You seem to have done something here, which is uh, fairly impressive, which is that this is normally or would be considered a campaign book, but it's not. It's actually a book that is delves into a lot of serious issues that you dealt with both in the Trump administration and I think outlines a lot of your thinking in a lot of ways, was the temptation there to just say, let's just do another, you know, here's 20 ways to fix America book. <laughs> you know, Ben, I'm glad you, you mentioned that. A lot of folks have written, oh my gosh, it's got a book coming out. It's 2024. Uh, one sad note and one happy note. The sad note is it was supposed to be out in August of last year and the author just couldn't get it done. <laughs> uh, uh, no, no, no intention to sync up with a calendar or an election year. Second, um, I, I no interest in, frankly, writing that book for this moment. I, 
I had, had a deep interest. I, I wasn't going to write Ben the first year. I didn't even think about this. It's been almost two now. And then I saw some of the other things that were being said about the way we'd operated and the motivation we had for the way we operated around the world. And I wanted to just tell them the story of this is what I saw, that it was fundamentally different from that, that we, we, we were prepared to break glass and change things. Um, we were aimed at protecting America and making it more prosperous. And I wanted to talk about how we did it, why we thought about it, the things that worked and the things that didn't. And so that's what's in the book, the stories of how uh, our administration viewed American greatness and exceptionalism and how to translate that into security for our people here at home. You have, obviously, your experience as a member of Congress. There are a number of members who are showing up here in Washington for the first time over the past month. Uh, they have their own views when it comes to foreign policy, which may be you know framed in a lot of different directions. But one of the things that I've heard pretty consistently is that they're very skeptical of the aid that the United States is sending to Ukraine. What are your thoughts on that? And what are your thoughts in terms of your message to these new members regarding the expenditure of American resources overseas? A couple of thoughts. Uh, one, I've heard a couple say we should stop this and we'll fix the budget problems. I I'd ask them to do some math. <laughs> it, it doesn't foot. Um, so if you're looking to solve the budget problems, which are real and serious and need to be addressed, and I applaud them for that, um, happy to reduce spending lots of places. If you're looking for solutions, this is a tiny, tiny part of that. So don't go tell your constituents back home, I'm going to solve the $31 trillion deficit by reducing defense spending by 2%. It, this math doesn't foot. Don't lie. Tell the truth. Second, um, when it comes to uh, keeping Americans safe, we were very cautious uh, about sending uh, American resources abroad. We wanted to make sure we did this right. But you've got to deter the bad guys. And to deter the bad guys, you need a very capable military, strong diplomats, a powerful American economy, and the willingness to find friends and allies around the world who are actually prepared to defend themselves. And so when you find one, like in Ukraine, uh, an ally who got all kinds of challenges at home, comes from a, has a corrupt regime where there's lots of corruption, but they're prepared to go fight on, for things that matter to you, protecting sovereignty of their nation, protecting Europe, all the economic consequences of that. And all they're looking for is tools, resources, and you can actually provide those resources to American companies so that they can build equipment, send it over to them so they can fight. That is a heck of a good outcome for the United States. Nobody's asked us to send a Marine Rifle Division or an 82nd Airborne. They've asked for stuff, and we ought to provide that stuff to them so long as they're prepared to carry on this fight. And then we should do what we did for four years was to implore the Europeans and indeed excoriate the Europeans when they do not. We should implore the Europeans to take this on in the first instance. They need to step up. They've done it a little bit. They're better than they were six years ago, but a long ways to go. Is there a direct line from the experience in Ukraine to Japan's announcement regarding upping their defense budget? You can draw lots of lines, Ben. Uh, the line from Japan going from, I think it's 1% of GDP to they've promised two. I'll bet they hit three, tripling essentially uh, their defense uh, research. You could see the Philippines changing their tune as well. All of those first islands there in the Pacific, the Singaporeans are watching, the Vietnamese are watching. We've seen the Australians step up. Uh, the South Koreans as well, all, all of them can see what happens when you're not prepared to defend yourself. You know, I'd draw two other straight lines. Uh, one was to Afghanistan, where America demonstrated it wasn't prepared to defend things it had promised to defend. And second, I'd draw a straight line to the Chinese Communist Party that is watching how America behaves here 
and thinking, is this the moment to go bring Taiwan into their orbit? If we get these things wrong, uh, bad guys around the world will feel freer to move about the cabin in ways they didn't for our four years. And when they feel free to move about the cabin, the impact here at home, uh, I know I know Taiwan seems a long ways away, but I'll bet we're talking today, as we're talking to all of your listeners, I'll bet we're talking on semiconductors that came from that island. Mm-hmm. And if the Chinese Communist Party got a hold of that, the, the way we live in America would be damaged for an awfully long time. One of those uh, members of Congress, not a new one, but someone who's going to be working on these issues is Mike Gallagher from Wisconsin, who's going to be the chair of this new select committee on China. What would you like to see from that select committee? What do you think its priorities ought to be? Um, And how can it send the message via its work to the political sphere, the elites, that the bipartisan consensus on China has shifted significantly from where it was 25 years ago? Yeah, Ben, no, it really has. And uh, our administration should be given a great deal of credit for that. We we, we at least got to the first step of every 12-step program, which is to recognize that you have a problem. <laughs> and, uh, and, and that leaves 11 more, and we got to some of that. Look, I'd like to see Representative Gallagher do a handful of things. The first is to uh, explain this to the American people, because I think that's important. In, in language that, that, um, that isn't political language, in language that is real and tangible, uh, 360,000 Chinese students studying in our universities not a single one of those universities could survive without Chinese money in their research research laboratories. They're buying land near our military facilities. They should educate the American people on why this matters uh, to them here at home. I, I shut down or directed the shutdown of the Chinese consulate in Houston, Texas. And they were running, the Chinese were running the largest spy operation in the history of America out of that facility. And crazy, just absolutely crazy. And we'd looked at one for years and knew it, but we didn't want to confront it. We just wanted to turn the other cheek. So I hope Representative Gallagher will go work on this problem. I think about it as the China that's inside the gates, that's working on us here at home to undermine uh, American exceptionalism and telling this narrative of American decline. Second, uh, they should call in every business leader, and they should, in fact, go out to some of these companies and show the American people and the world how the Chinese Communist Party has damaged the American economy and built its economy on the backs of the American people for the last 40 years. Uh, tell these stories about Chinese kleptocracy, uh, Chinese propaganda, Chinese using their supply chain in ways that are adverse to America, and convincing the economic class here in the United States, the Wall Street class, uh, that it too must be a participant in pushing back and confronting the Chinese Communist Party. And then the last piece is they should look at uh, the geostrategic implications uh, for the United States and how we build out our partnerships with uh, countries in the Pacific and indeed with NATO to confront all of the various threats, uh, military and kinetic threats that the Chinese Communist Party presents. Those are three central vectors that if we get those right and we begin to push back, then all of these problems that China has today, it's demographics, it's in a financial mess too, it's an authoritarian regime, a godless place. Those things will come back to haunt them, but we'll only do so if we have a strong America that's prepared to actually push on those open doors. I loved your anecdote about uh, meeting Kim Jong Un. Uh, what What do you think about the uh, situation vis-a-vis uh, the the Korean Peninsula and and everything that we have in terms of challenges there? Uh, and do you think that China can be uh, at least pushed off the idea that they're going to back them in some way uh, in terms of a future conflict? So this is a real challenge. Uh, President Trump was told by President Obama this would be the biggest challenge of our time, so he sent his 
eager sec, uh, CIA director to uh, Pyongyang uh, in yeah, Easter of 2018. I tell this story in the book for two reasons. One, it was a model of American deterrence. And, well, and it's also an example of a place we didn't fully succeed. Uh, Chairman Kim still has his nuclear weapons program, so our, our ultimate mission was not successful. But we did reduce risk. We reduced the risk from no long-range missile tests, no nuclear tests. We got back the remains of a bunch of Americans who'd been there. I got three hostages back home as well. So we used American power in a way that was decent and right and realist and very pragmatic. And he'd stopped much of what he was doing. And sadly, Ben, he's back at it again. They're firing mm-hmm. missiles now, goodness, almost every week yep. from North Korea. Their, their conventional forces are more aggressive. I don't believe for a second that would have happened if we were still on watch. Uh, I want to shift to uh, the situation vis-a-vis the, the Ukraine conflict. How does this end from your perspective? What should the U.S. demand in terms of the way that it ends? And how can we actually prevent, you know, if if this ought to be a U.S. priority, a, a war of revenge, essentially, on the part of, of Ukraine against these Russians who have invaded them and killed so many of their people? Yeah, those are really good questions. Uh, the second and third one are connected. Uh, the first one's the hardest, the how and the when will this end? I'm not optimistic that uh, any of the leadership, not just Putin and Zelensky, but any of the leadership in either place has the incentive to to bring this to a conclusion today. Uh, you're going to have to push Putin harder to restore the deterrence that P- President Biden lost along with Zelensky. Uh, and so more, better, faster, it seems to me, reduces risk. Every day this goes on is the risk that Putin does something really, really stupid, a, a tactical nuclear weapon moving into the plant in Zafiriza. You can imagine lots of things that even heighten the catastrophe that is this European war. Uh, so I, I hope the Biden administration will do more. I hope Europe will lean in harder. Those are the kind of things that Putin will value. He lie, he knows about power and only respects it. Uh, as for how this ends, um, the most important thing is we put it in a place that we don't have to deal with this again two years from now or five years from now or 10 years from now. The outlines of that uh, probably have a series of options, but there's going to have to be a security arrangement that the United States can accept and that the Ukrainians can accept that acknowledges that here are the boundaries wherever they ultimately are drawn, but these are these are permanent, whatever permanent means in our world. Uh, that is, they're set up in a, in a way that makes the cost for anyone, whether it's the Russians or some knucklehead in Belarus, whoever it is, who says, no, it's just not worth the candle, and we get another... 40 or 50 years of European peace, something that the world desperately needs and that the Ukrainian people who have fought so hard for can count on. Mm-hmm. You you are clearly uh, an analyst, not just of, of world situations, but of human behavior. What do you think went into the miscalculations within the Russian regime that led them to think that this would go so differently than it has? Boy, there's always a series of things. When you see a catastrophe almost always not a single source problem. So first, uh, Putin has wanted to do this forever. So the motivating force hasn't changed. I, I spent a fair amount of time with him. His determination, he, he, he just, if he asked you, Ben, I'm from Kansas. Like, I think, I'm pretty sure Kansas is part of the United States. But if you ask me to explain it, you know, what do you mean explain it? He thinks Ukraine is part of Russia too. So it's in his DNA. That's not going to change. Um, what he saw was a uh, president of the United States who said that a minor incursion might be okay, who walked away from defense in Afghanistan, who 
Yeah, this seems like a long time ago, almost two years ago now. Remember, we had pipelines, gasoline pipelines shut down in the United States for a handful of days. And when President Biden went to see Putin, he said, don't do that again. That's a green light, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. No cost imposed on them. That series of things uh, combined with pent-up demand drove Putin to behave in this way. Uh, he also saw a feckless Europe uh, that had depended on him for their energy supplies, and he thought he had them by the throat and figured that they wouldn't have the temerity to oppose him. Uh, and the good news is um, we've outperformed his expectations. And then lastly, I think his generals just flat out lied to him in in the way that militaries that are part of authoritarian regimes often do. They don't have junior enlisted officers. They don't have NCOs. They don't. There's no truth telling inside the Russian army. It is a, uh, it is a place of yes men. And I think his generals told him yes, and he tried to do something that's really hard. Advancing in a land war on four axes is just really complicated, and very logistically difficult. And he underestimated, and his military leadership underestimated how hard that would be. Last thought: You should know that the Ukrainian defense forces have been trained by the United States for an awfully long time. Um, when I was a CIA director, I was in Southeast Ukraine on more than one occasion. We were helping them with uh, special operating forces stuff. That's about all I can say. <laughs> but the American people should be proud of the fact that um, we didn't risk American lives, but we did that kind of good work training others to actually defend their own country. And as a result of that, you see some pretty darn good successes by the Ukrainian military. You're a movie buff. I know. Have you seen The Death of Stalin? I have seen it. Okay, yeah. Put it on their must-watch list. Yes, I I think it's very helpful in terms of understanding the Putin Kremlin mindset at the moment. Maybe that's what I should have led with. (laughs) Um, In your book, you talk about a number of different challenges that you had. One of the biggest challenges, whenever there is a Republican administration in Washington, is dealing with the administrative state, uh, the threat that it has in terms of. Uh, their attitude toward Republican administrations and basically feeling that we'll be around long after you're gone and we don't have to do anything that you want us to do. This is, of course, more prevalent at the State Department than perhaps any other department. So tell me a little bit about how you dealt with that as you relate in your book uh, uh, and, uh, and the challenges of basically taking on a bureaucracy that is at odds with your agenda. It was a mess. I <laughs> know uh, two different organizations. When I came to CIA, Director Brennan had been in charge before me. He had politicized it in dangerous ways, but it didn't take very long before the team was back on sides. They appreciated that I was going to let them take risk and be smart and you know, put, a, put a dagger in their mouth and go do good stuff for America. Uh, and so that institution moved to try to deliver on behalf of the American people and the new director. When I came to the State Department, uh, it's fair to say just the opposite. Um, there were good people. There are good people. But that bureaucracy, it's not it's a it's a, a pretty it's a it's a left of center bureaucracy, but it's mostly a Washington, D.C. establishment bureaucracy. And we came at this willing to just change a lot of things. We talked about North Korea. We flipped the switch in Iran. We moved. Uh, we did a 100 percent turn on China. The establishment didn't like any of that, right? We moved the U.S. Embassy to Jerusalem. Everybody said this is going to cause World War III. We took a strike on Qasem Soleimani. This was guaranteed to cause World War III. The bureaucracies have become unresponsive. And this is both, this runs counter to our Constitution and our founding. 
That's as an academic matter, that's really bad. And as an American matter, it's horrible. But as a practical matter, it's really dangerous because the American people elected President Trump and the United States Senate confirmed Mike Pompeo. And that State Department should be doing what it is we direct them to do. And it was, it took everything I had. There's three unions, civil service rules. It's just a beast. And I have a theory of the case on how one might correct that. Yeah. So what is that? It's going to take six, eight years of determination. That next conservative president needs to come in with guns ablazing and be prepared to take all the heat from the Washington Post and the New York Times and the State Department unions, uh, but fundamentally reform the way we populate, the way we create this establishment. And uh, we'll need help from Congress to change the civil service rules. Uh, We shouldn't have government unions inside our biggest federal bureaucracies. It's just crazy stuff. There's no other country in the world that has that same model. Uh, I, I could go on for a long time about how to do it. And then that president needs to get his team on the field. That would be the third leg of the stool. We were slow in getting our political team into positions as assistant secretaries and deputy assistant secretaries. And when you don't have your people in those positions, it is a it is a daily grind to push through the things you're trying to actually execute. I'm going to ask you a question that you don't need to answer as a potential uh, candidate for 2024, but just as an analyst. There seems to be a dearth of understanding of national security policy on the right at the moment. I don't know if you agree with that, but it certainly is something that I feel. Um, there's a rising generation of younger people who've gone through the experiences, perhaps, of Iraq and Afghanistan, who have their own thoughts. But to, your, to the degree that you do understand it, what is the foreign policy that unites the Republican Party at this moment? I think I think we were close to the right place that can unite the party for our four years. Um, I get that people watched Iraq and Afghanistan, and um, we can all evaluate whether we should have been there and then if we executed right when we were actually there. But it is, and, and we've always had this a little bit inside of our party, right? We the Pat Buchanan wing of the party's always kind of been there, this isolationist model. I It tugs at my heart as someone who grew up as a libertarian right? This like, leave me alone libertarianism. So I get that. But having having now seen this both as a soldier, as a young lieutenant in Germany in the 1980s, when we defeated the Soviet Union, then again, in Congress and in two roles in the administration, there is no chance to deliver on the very freedoms we want here in America, if we turn our back on what's going on across the world, they're simply not going to leave us alone. What happens in Beijing, what happens in Moscow does not stay in Beijing or Moscow. And it's certainly not the case that what happens in Pyongyang or Tehran stays in those places as well. And so that means uh, we, don't, we don't have to spend our time creating new wars. We don't have to put big ground commitments, but we do have to be determined. We have to have a capable space force, a capable cyber force, an expeditionary marine force. We have to have those tools of traditional power that can stand behind, I was a 70th Secretary of State, 70th Secretary of State, that can stand behind the 72nd, 73rd, 74th Secretary of State so that the bad guys recognize that America is serious about preserving its way of life. When you were elevated to being Secretary of State, did you look back at all at the writings of prior Secretaries of State? Is there one in particular who stood out to you as being informative of the approach that you took? Ben, I spent a lot of time looking at what Hillary Clinton had done. 
<laughs> no, I'm kidding. Um, <laughs> well, I was assuming you were going to say well, that, I, that I did the opposite. <laughs> but it, it is. It is. It's really George quite, Costanza approach. <laughs> yes, exactly. it, it is really quite something that um, my first run in with any secretary of state was when I served on the Benghazi committee. Yes. When she'd had an, she'd had an ambassador killed in Libya as a result of some really bad decisions that were made. Uh, I, I never forgot those lessons either. Um, you know, I'm from Kansas. Uh, the the way that President Eisenhower had delivered America's security policy around the world, not just in his time as a general, but even at his time after, uh, his concern about a commercial enterprise, he called it the military-industrial complex, that wasn't responsive to the actual needs of American security was something that I certainly took on board. Uh, and then I, uh, I, I also had watched President Reagan when I was a young soldier, and so uh, read the things that Secretary Schultz had done as well. Um, a different model, a different mindset than mine, uh, different times today, frankly, in the world. Um, but they helped me understand, along with uh, a book by Jim Baker, who was very kind to me, Secretary Baker was very kind mm-hmm. to me, who, who reminded me uh, lovingly, he says, if you, if you aren't connected to the president, if, if people think you, uh, you can't speak on behalf of President Trump, you're just a dude on vacation. <laughs> so, uh, so I did my best to make sure that the whole world knew that I was delivering on behalf of the country and the president. And I wasn't, this wasn't a Mike Pompeo do-it-yourself exercise. You were a uh, tank commander? Uh, a long time ago. Yes, yeah. 40 years ago. What's the best tank movie? Oh, goodness. There's so many. Is it, 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 How do you evaluate Fury in that? Is there, a, is there Fury's another? Fury's right there. I, I love also watching Patton. Just yeah. little snippets of it, where he's got this famous line where he uh, he's in Africa and he says, Rommel, I was I there. Yes. Uh, <laughs> we should all read the books of our adversaries and know them and then crush them. <laughs> um, final question for you, uh, Mr. Secretary. Uh, look, I know that you are not going to announce on this podcast one way or the other what you're going to be doing in 2024. But one thing I would ask you is, what do you think the next president of the United States, regardless of who it is, needs to do when it comes to confronting the menace of China? From day one, what is what is the approach that they ought to deploy, regardless of whether it was you or someone else or a friend of yours or even an enemy of yours? What should they do? Yeah, I'll do it in one word. Reciprocity. If the Chinese can buy land near our military facilities, we should be able to buy land near their military facilities. If we can't, they can't get it here. Um, If they can use propaganda on the telephones of our children, we should be able to put our propaganda on the phones of their children. Those are two just tiny, narrow examples. The theory of the case is we've uh, we've let them have one set of rules, and we've bent the knee and kowtowed to them and had an entirely different set of rules, and that is just – that can't continue. So – Think reciprocity across economic, military, commercial, education, research, uh, diplomacy. If you get all of those things reciprocal, we'll be in a pretty darn good place. It'll be a dogfight. It will not be linear. It will not be easy. There will be real costs. But in the end, we will crush the Chinese Communist Party just as we did the Soviets. Secretary Pompeo, thank you so much for taking the time to join me today. Thank you, Ben. Bless you. Have a good day. More of the Ben Dominic podcast right after this. So I'm happy to announce, and you may already know this if you follow me or my wife on social media, that we have a new addition to the household. Uh, Clover Jade uh, arrived 
on the 19th of January. And after just a few hiccups here and there, uh, she is doing quite well uh, here at home. And you may even hear her in the background. Uh, but I am very happy with this, obviously, to have a, a household full of girls who demand my attention and order me around. Uh, but it also is something, obviously, that creates a little bit of a challenge when it comes to uh, fulfilling my various jobs here from home. Look, I uh, I love you all as listeners. Thank you so much for subscribing to this podcast. Uh, we've done a little bit of uh, pre-vamping uh, and, and various uh, uh, things that we've recorded ahead of time. Uh, but uh, we'll see how much that actually lives up to this uh, time period here where I might be a little bit less able to conduct an interview or read a book or <laughs> or really pay attention to somebody uh, who uh, I want to pay attention to. I, I am very, very blessed. And one of the things that I want to uh, just share with you is that, you know, there's this whole mindset that occurs within the world of media that basically says, you know, you you shouldn't have kids that, you know, kids get in the way of doing the job of media. You don't have the kind of flexibility that is necessary in order to do any of these types of things. And I frankly know a lot of people who are in media who are very bad parents. And when I say bad parents, I mean that they're just people who don't pay attention to their kids. Uh, they slough them off onto other family members or they uh, pay for other people to watch them. They don't really uh, engage with them the way that I think that every parent ought to engage uh, with their kids. And I don't say that with any kind of judgment. I mean, you know, it's just one of these things where, you know, that is, that's your choice in life. I think you'll probably regret it, but it is a choice uh, that a lot of people make. And we have had the luxury of not having to make that choice. Um, my wife and I have been able to work from home over the past two and a half plus years and pay attention to our daughter and now our daughters. And uh, I'm very grateful for that and for uh, the, the support that, you know, in the case of my wife, the Daily Mail, in the case of myself, Fox News and The Spectator offer to us in order for us to be able to pay attention to the most important people in our lives, to maintain our relationship with them, to build them up, to teach them, to read to them, uh, to cook for them, to be present when they need us. Uh, and, you know, frankly, one of the things that I think is so true about American life right now is that we need to have a refocus on the importance of children in our lives, the importance of the family unit and maintaining the kind of engagement, support, uh, and, uh, and all-around comfort that needs to be provided by those members of the family in order to have, you know, not just well-raised children, but a functioning society. This is something that I've thought about for a long time. I know that a lot of other people are thinking about it as well. I think a lot of conservatives are thinking about it for the first time as opposed to just being capitalists and the like. So thank you for all of the different encouraging emails and uh, messages that you've sent to me and my wife. I truly appreciate them. And 
You will have a little bit of evergreen content, I think, over the next couple of weeks, but mostly it will be things uh, that are very interesting uh, and that are very applicable to the kind of challenges that face us in American politics today. So with that, thank you for listening. I'll be back soon to dive back into the frame.